We're in a series uh, called Prepare for His Coming. Prepare for His Coming. And this series is going to culminate this week and with our Christmas Eve service. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. Last week, uh, I made the joke that we weren't in a gospel. We were in uh, the Old Testament. And so now we're bringing it back, everybody. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, one of the most known passages of Scripture concerning Jesus' coming to the earth. Really, really looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Would you turn with me? Luke chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. And it says this. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What I want to talk about for the next few minutes that we're together is the title of this message, Mission Miracle. Mission Miracle. What I want to talk about are three things. One, heaven's mission. Two, Jesus's mission. And three, man's miracle. Heaven's mission, Jesus's mission, and man's miracle. Will you pray with me for a moment? Lord, we submit all of this time to you. Saying, Lord, would you do more with it than we can ask, think, or imagine? Lord, if you are here, a miracle can happen. If you are here, Lord, families can be restored. Hope can be brought back. Lives can be redeemed. Relationships can be saved. Habits and strongholds can be broken and life can be found. You said that where two or more are gathered in your name, you'll be in the midst of them. So Lord, we welcome you here. We welcome you in our midst. This is all for you, Jesus. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday? In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. We have a tradition a little bit as a family, um, a Christmas tradition, where we all the time when we gather together, it's not like something we have written down or something we have to do, but... I've noticed over the course of many years, holidays and Christmas specifically, that my family, we love when all of us are gathered together, we have a moment of uninterrupted time to watch movies. 
to go see movies. That's like something we love to do. And especially during Christmas time, we just always find ourselves watching movie after movie after movie. And one movie that we love during Christmas time, and I'm not sure how it came to be, but it's the best Christmas movie ever. One movie that we love to watch during Christmas time is the movie Mission Impossible. <laughs> Mission Impossible. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but watching Ethan Hunt jump onto the Burj Khalifa and climb up the tallest building in the world, and then in another movie, jump onto a cargo plane and fly in the air, just holding onto the netting, and then watching Benji crack every code known to man with just a Mac, and then watching like them like disarm a nuclear bomb three seconds before it goes off and him fight Superman. Like, watching him do all this stuff is the like, coolest thing ever. And, and, and when you watch Mission Impossible, like, you know what's going to happen. Like, there is a horrible circumstance that needs to be fixed, and then Ethan and Benji and the team are going to get this message, and he's not going to want to do it, but the world's going to be in danger, and it's, if, you tr- if this is your mission, if you choose to accept it, right? And he's going to be like, fine, I'll save the world, and he's going to go through all these trials through an impossible mission, and then there's going to be one moment where they're going to save the world, and everyone's going to be like, yo, he did it again. And I watch it every time. And I'm going to keep watching them. And as we look at Mission Impossible and what Ethan and Benji and the whole team do, I think in Luke 2, we find a really, really similar story. Where there is an impossible circumstance, it requires a miraculous moment. When there's an impossible circumstance for Ethan and the team to save the world, we always find them coming up to the level and having this miraculous moment of saving the world. And if you look at the context of Luke chapter 2, you're going to find political strife. You're going to find violence. You're going to find immorality. You're going to find a people of God who have not heard from God canonically in Scripture for 400 years. You're going to find a people whose hope has been dashed, who are now under the rule of Rome. You're going to find a people who are hopeless, who don't know what to do. A seemingly impossible circumstance. And then you're going to find Jesus. An impossible circumstance requires a miraculous moment. And in Luke chapter 2, it's the miraculous moment. I'm not sure if we're fully aware, but this moment right here in Luke chapter 2, where we find all of these impossible circumstances surrounding this moment, this right here is the most critical moment in all of human history besides the cross. The moment in which Jesus came to earth putting on flesh and bone, Jesus, God himself incarnate in man, is the most critically important moment in human history. And we find ourselves right here with hope being realized. Heaven meeting earth. The moment 
And if I could set it for you, you have these, these shepherds who are watching over their flocks at night and all of a the sudden, them doing their jobs, these, these men who were considered social outcasts, who weren't allowed to do what everyone else was allowed to do, who had really bad reputations, who, who weren't seen as clean, who, who weren't allowed to, to, to participate in all of the rituals and traditions that everyone else could participate in, the, the lowest of society, the, the job that nobody wanted, all of a sudden at night doing their job seemingly mundane, an angel of the Lord appears to them. And he has this message, this good news of great joy, literally the gospel, good news of great joy. And it's for all people. And he gives it to the shepherds. And the shepherds are terrified because they think that they're going to die. That's what happens when angels appear to you typically is that you die. And all of a sudden he realized, no, this is, this is actually a good thing. And all of a sudden after that, we see a, a multitude of heavenly hosts appear to the shepherds. And they start praising God, giving glory to God. And then the shepherd's response then is saying, wow, this thing just happened. We need to go and see what has just happened in Bethlehem. And they go and see this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger and leaving, glorifying God. The most critical moment besides the cross in all of human history. The incarnation of Jesus, hope being realized in this moment. And if you're like me, what you do in this moment, fully understanding, hopefully for, for a moment, is you have a soul sigh. That's what I call it, a soul sigh, which is, but for your soul. You know when you finish that project that you've been working on all year for your boss and it's finally done and you finally go, oh. Or when you get back from a long day at work and you realize that's done, it's the weekend, I can, or maybe you finish that class finally and you don't have to see that professor again and, and you finally put in the assignment. Or maybe you don't have to take the kid to gymnastics anymore because the season is over. Or maybe you finally got the job that you wanted. Or maybe you finally signed the lease and all of a sudden you give a, but for your soul. Those are all outer, which is great. But this moment, if we allow it to be, can be a soul sigh for you in this season. Jesus has come. That Jesus is here and my hope is realized. Heaven's mission, Jesus's mission, and man's miracle. Mission, miracle. Now, heaven has a mission in this moment in history. In heaven's mission, I'm going to give it to you straight. Heaven's mission in this moment is the glory and the proclamation of the glory of God. That's heaven's mission. What is heaven doing? Heaven is proclaiming the glory of God. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Heaven is all about the glory of God. If you're wondering what's going on in heaven right now, they are glorifying God. That's what heaven is about. That's the mission of heaven in Luke chapter 2. The angels appear and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. And we see in this moment that this word glory, it's this this time when people esteem highly something. When When I was looking into this, I was looking into the words and, and how they were used and what they mean. And the word used here for the glory of God is this word doxa, this Greek word doxa. What this Greek word is, is partly what some of us would imagine. It's um, to esteem highly of, to, to, to something that is majestic, something that is worthy of praise, something that is in, in splendor and, and bright like the stars or majesty, things like that. But... There's another part that I saw in scripture where it says the biblical use for this term is actually a thing that belongs to God. Glory. A thing that belongs to God. I don't know if you're like me, but I love that. That glory isn't just something that God does It's something that he has, that he is. He doesn't just give glory out somewhere. If something has glory, it has been given it by God. Nothing in this world, as beautiful as the mountains are and as beautiful as the sunsets can be and as crazy as the ocean is and you can look at the stars and see how big and magnificent they are, nothing in all of creation has glory unless it's been given it by God. That means if you see something that is worthy of praise, that should actually redirect your praise to God because that thing would not be worthy of glory if the thing of glory had not been given Doxa, this this thing that belongs to God. That means that God is showing off right here. The glory of the God shown around them. It would not be there if God had not given it. And God is giving this glory. The shepherd, can you imagine being in this moment? I mean, the moment, the word used here in the scripture is good news of great joy, good tidings of great joy, the, the good news, the gospel. That means that the, the angels are proclaiming the gospel to the shepherds. Can you imagine hearing the gospel for the first time from an angel? That's what's happening to the shepherds. The first evangelist of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this form is the angel in Luke chapter 2. And the glory of the Lord is showing around him. And it's full. And then it says that that the hosts of heaven come. And that means there's a party. There are myriads of angels who came just for this moment to glorify God. God. A thing cannot be glorious unless God gives it glory. I wanted to uh, be an actor. Some of you guys know that. And one of the uh, like big um, places where my desire for acting really came from was when I went to New York for one of the first times and saw a Broadway show. And the first Broadway show that I ever remember seeing was The Lion King. 
And if you've seen The Lion King, you know it's this amazingly intricate and and glorious, amazingly beautiful show that is so um, incredible that it leaves you speechless. Even as a kid, I I just wide eyes. And, and even though you have these moments of you have Rafiki and Simba and Mufasa and Nala and, and, and all these different people in the story who are the main characters in the story in which we're following, they're amazing. Like you, you see Mufasa getting thrown off the mountain in slow motion and falling down. It's, it's incredible. But something else that's really, really always caught my attention about the the scale of these shows isn't just the main characters, but it's also the antelopes. It's the the ostriches and and the people who are playing the grass. It's it's, it's the giraffes and the people who have to hold their hands like this for the entire show so that their neck is long. It's, It's the ensemble of the show, which sometimes amazes me. And, and what an ensemble is, is it's the people who are supporting the main characters and their progress and their point throughout the show. Some of you know where I'm going. The angels in heaven are an ensemble to God's glory. And the point of the ensemble is not to take in any of the attention, but to funnel the focus and point to the main character on what they are supposed to do. So now when I see the antelopes and the giraffes and the ostriches, I say, wow, that's incredible. But their whole purpose is to funnel my focus, to redirect my attention, to point my gaze and my hope towards the thing that I should be focused on, which is the doxa, the glory, the actual manifest presence of God. What the angels are here doing, they're, they're merely the ensemble. They're merely the, the ensemble to what is really going on in the main story. And what is going on in the main story is that the hope of the world has been realized in the person of Jesus. Their job is not to steal the show, but to funnel our focus towards what's really going on in the show. And worship and glory whether it's either in heaven or on earth or in this sanctuary, its aim is not to make much of itself, but to make much of God. So whenever we come into this place, our aim is not to make much of ourselves, but it's to make much of God. So I know that when we look in Luke chapter two, the glory that's shown around the angels was not in a hope to say, look at how impressive the angels are. Look how great this moment is, but to redirect my attention to God, realizing I'm not the main character. I'm just the ensemble that's participating in showing the true doxa of the one who actually holds glory. When you come to church, are we thinking that we're the main character? Are we thinking that this is supposed to serve me? Why didn't the worship team play Maverick City this Sunday? Where's the hill? I like the songs we used to do. We should have we been in this song longer and that song not as... The pastor, I, I liked that pastor, but I really liked the other pastor better. I, like it's, no, you're doing great, but I liked the other, I liked the other guy too. Do we think of ourselves as the main character, as I'm the main focus of the story? That things are here to serve me? That I'm supposed to just come to church to get all of my needs met? Or are we coming to church thinking that God is the main character and I'm supposed to be the one that gives him the glory that is already due to him? I'm the ensemble. 
If we come to church thinking we're the main character and making much of ourselves and not making much of God, we will miss the whole point of the story. You won't get as much out of church as you ought to if you come into church thinking you're the main character. Jesus is. He's our focal point. And heaven is obsessed with giving God glory, consistently, continually, constantly glorifying God. Would we be a church that consistently, continually, constantly glorifies God? Heaven's mission. Heaven's mission, which culminates in this beautiful sentence, which I can't even unpack as well as I need to, so I won't. But uh, it says, glory to God in the highest and on peace and peace among those with whom he is well pleased. A, a beautiful, beautiful proclamation from the angels. If you were here at our carols and candlelight service this past Wednesday, you heard a message from Pastor June about this specific passage of scripture. And I just redirect you to that message. Go to YouTube and watch Carols and Candlelight this past Wednesday, and we will see how the peace of God and the glory of God are intertwined for the people of God. It is a beautiful message from Pastor June, so I'll leave it right there. Watch Pastor June's message. Those who are clapping have heard it. The glory, heaven is obsessed with the glory of God and Jesus' mission. So we, so we see heaven's mission, which is to glorify God. And now we see Jesus's mission, which is simply to bring good news of great joy. Good news of great joy, the gospel. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. <laughs> I love the way that Jesus enters. I love the way that, that Jesus enters into things because when we see Jesus entering into things, it's in stark contrast to the proclamation of the incarnation. When we see the proclamation of the incarnation, the, the moment that the angels announce that Jesus is here, Emmanuel, God with us, we see now the next moment is that there's a host of angels, there's glory showing all around, there's this proclamation of a king, there's this, 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 this is understanding that this is a big, big moment. It's the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then what the angel says is, for this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You see the stark contrast from angels, hosts, glory, to babies and barns. I love the way that Jesus enters. It, it, it's, it's the incarnation. It's, it's that Jesus enters not in palaces, but in barns. Not in a strong man, but actually in the form of a newborn baby. Not on a throne, but actually in a manger. Not with celebration, but actually seemingly forgotten. The incarnation, the, the way that Jesus enters, or even the way that Jesus enters during his triumphal entry. That Jesus is 
approaching his last week of earthly ministry, entering the city of Jerusalem, and he's about to die for the sins of the world after healing, proclaiming, having authority to cast out demons, preaching the gospel to the poor, advancing the kingdom of God, being God incarnate, about to be taken to the cross, and is in triumphal entry. It's not he's entering the city of Jerusalem with trumpets, but with palm branches. Not with royalty and kings and queens, but with fishermen and tax collectors. Not on a white horse upon a chariot, but actually on a donkey. Or maybe even the way that Jesus enters you and I. Not through rigid relation, but through outstandingly real relationship. Not with condemnation, but actually with elaborate redemption. Not through effort, but actually through intimacy. And not through our actions, but actually through our heart. I love the way that Jesus enters. Are you missing Jesus in this season because you're expecting the extravagant and not the intimate? expecting the big angel chorus that this is going to be God's sign to me to go and do what I know I already should do, but I need God to give me a sign or some type of vision or some type of moment of angels and choruses and these things? Or or do we see God in the quiet, intimate, silent nights? I love the way that Jesus enters. And it says that to you this day has been born a Savior, If there is a savior, inherently that means there is danger. And I'm not sure if a lot of us understand that yet. That you and I and all of the world were in danger. It says today, this day has been born to you a savior, not a reformer, not an advisor, not a blesser. Not a prophet, not a corrector, not a condemner, not a good person, not a moral teacher. Today, this day has been born to you a savior, which means that you and I are in need of saving because we are in danger. This is why Jesus came, not to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Jesus came, not because you needed an upgrade, but you needed something entirely new. I didn't need somebody to make me a better person. There are plenty of teachers, books, and podcasts that can do that. I'm not looking to be a better person. I was a dead person. That's what the Bible says. I wasn't a bad person. I was a dead person. I was an enemy of God. The Bible says you and I before Christ were children of darkness. I needed a savior. I needed help beyond that which I could even comprehend. And Jesus' mission says, I'm not going to send another prophet. I'm not going to send another teacher. I'm not going to send more laws. I'm not just going to, I'm going to send myself. Because I need saving, not reforming. To you, this day has been born a savior. I'm just asking you guys, don't reduce Jesus this season to merely an advisor or an addition to your life. The temptation 
People in antiquity, Jews, when they realized the Messiah was coming, their temptation was to think of Jesus as an avenger. As, as like a, a, a guy who's going to take back everything that was stolen. Like Rome is in charge. Rome shouldn't be in charge. We should be in charge. Like God, you, you need to be like David was. Like David. Like David conquered people and he brought peace and, and he had a kingdom, a physical, literal, actual kingdom. And, and Solomon had the temple and we, we had this moment. It was our glory days. God, Jesus, you're going to bring us back to that. You're, you're, you're going you're gonna to establish your kingdom here. And, and Jesus was, but it wasn't going to be like what they thought. And, and, and Jesus comes in and, and he says, you know what? I, I'm not just going to be an avenger for you. That's not merely what I'm trying to do. And, and, in, and, and, and in antiquity, what they thought was maybe Jesus will just avenge me. Now, our temptation might not be that Jesus is our avenger. I believe that our temptation today in this room is that Jesus isn't an avenger. He's just simply an addition. That Jesus is what I add on to my life instead of being the actual foundation of my life. We, we, we boil Jesus down to Bible verses and bios. We boil Jesus down to posts on social media and prayers before meals. We boil Jesus down to coming to church once a week. We think of Jesus sometimes as, as an addition to my life instead of seeing him as the foundation. The question for the church that I want to ask you guys today is Jesus only your capstone or is he your cornerstone? Is he something you add on at the end once you have your life right and once everything's going good for you and Jesus is the thing that you put on to bless the life that you created for yourself? Or is Jesus the very foundation of the thing that you base your entire life on? The cornerstone, the thing that I can't live without, the thing that envelops and I'm obsessed with my entire day, the thing I wake up thinking about, live thinking about, and go to sleep thinking about. You see, the cornerstone of your life. C.S. Lewis said it like this He said, If Christianity or Christ is false, it is of no importance. If Christianity or Christ is true, then it's of infinite importance. The only thing that Christianity and Christ cannot be is of mild importance. If Jesus Christ is true, he is of infinite importance in your life. If Jesus Christ is false, he is of no importance in your life. The only thing that Jesus Christ cannot be is of mild importance. And some of us in this room add Jesus on as if we can make him something of mild importance. Something we just add on to our lives. Something I do once I've gotten my life ready, but if Jesus starts to rock the boat, if my life doesn't look like what I thought my five-year plan would be, if I don't have kids by this time, married by this time, retired by this time, live in this place, have this car, have that degree, have that respect, have this power, then Jesus, you're not benefiting my life. Maybe I can just remove you from it. And all of a sudden, Jesus becomes mildly important to the purposes and plans that we have made for ourselves instead of fully submitting to the plans and purposes he has for us. Jesus cannot be mildly important. Now, 
C.S. Lewis was making a point, but we all know Jesus is of infinite importance. He is of infinite importance. The question is, where is he placed in your life? Where is he placed in your life? The temptation we have will be to add Jesus as simply an addition, simply a capstone instead of our cornerstone. Heaven's mission, to glorify God. Jesus' mission, to, to save, to bring the good news, good news of great joy, and man's miracle. Man's miracle. If you see in Scripture, the angels come, and they start proclaiming and doing and telling and and Jesus comes and he starts proclaiming and doing and telling. And, and all of a sudden we see the shepherds in the story. Verse 15, I'm just reading the Bible. says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Our job and our mission is not just seemingly to go and do for God, but to go and see God. Our job is not merely to accept our mission, but to accept our miracle. That makes sense? Not just to do for God, but to receive him. Let us go and see what this angel has just told us. When was the last time you said, let me just go and see Jesus? My job is not to make Jesus more glorious. I just want to see him in all of his glory. I just want to go see this thing that has happened. Oftentimes we think, what? Great. That's great. That's great. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I'm telling you, go see, go see, go see. Go see, go see Jesus. Go look at him. You say, but what else? No, 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 no. Go look at him. Go see him. You cannot truly see Christ and not be changed. If we truly see Christ, we are forever changed. It's such a a temptation on the inside of us to want to do for God. And I get it. We're in a doing culture. I get it. But here's the issue is when we bring that into churchdom, if we bring that into our following of Jesus and that I will do, 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 because if you do, 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 if you are too busy doing for God without being to God, you will have an empty religion. If we are so busy being caught up in what do I need to do for God without first knowing we belong to God, you will have an empty religion. Paul says this beautifully throughout the entire New Testament, but especially in Ephesians. We we see halfway through Ephesians that the first chapter, the first three chapters and and the last three chapters are, are critical in our understanding of how we're supposed to follow God. Now, we know Paul didn't put in chapter one, two, three, four, five, six. We did that. But as soon as we find the middle of the book of Ephesians, we see that the first three chapters are surrounded with this beautiful, beautiful truth that we have been made worthy by God. 
right? So it says that because of the great love with which he loved us, we who were once dead in our trespasses have now been made alive in Christ. It is because it is by grace that you have been saved. It is not an act of works so that no man can boast. It is this truth that God did for us what we can't do for ourselves. And now in light of what Jesus did for me that I was unable to do for myself and also unwilling to do for myself, I am now worthy and righteous with God. Beautiful. Then you get to four, five, and six. The first thing he says in chapter four is now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's really hard because we are a chapter four type of culture. Walk in a manner worthy, walk in a manner worthy, walk in a manner worthy. But it's impossible to walk in a manner worthy to the calling to which you've been called if you do not first know that you have been made worthy. We walk worthy because we've been made worthy. Some of us are in a rut in Christianity because we're living backwards. We are trying to walk worthy to be made worthy. Can't happen. It it cannot happen. And we see Paul elaborating beautifully. I walk worthy because and in the strength of God has made me worthy. And that's how I act. That's what I do. That's how I behave. I go and receive my my miracle from Jesus. I receive it. And here's the thing. I get it. We have a great commission, guys. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. There's something Jesus wants us to do. I understand there is a mission. And there is no great commission in Matthew 28 if you don't see the first 27 chapters of Matthew. Some of you are like, yeah, pastor, but what do we need to do? See Jesus. See Jesus. And after you've seen him, keep seeing him. After you've looked at him, keep looking at him. After you've looked upon his glory and his doxa, keep looking at his glory and his doxa because you cannot see Christ truly and remain the same. Receive your miracle. Receive your miracle. If I try and make my being come out of my doing, I evidence that I'm not a son or a daughter, but I'm a slave. If I evidence my being, if I evidence that my my doing comes out of my being, I evidence that I am a son and a daughter of God. That's what it tells. That's what it speaks, that I am content in who God has made me to be. So who am I? I'm the one that Christ came toward. That's who I am. I'm the shepherd in the field. The social outcast. The one who didn't deserve God's glory to be manifested to him. I'm the one that received mercy when I wasn't supposed to receive it. I'm the one that Christ came toward. And out of that place, understanding I'm the one that Jesus came toward, I now understand if Jesus can do it for me, come on, he can do it for you. I'm the one that Jesus came toward. In this season, if we can just get that truth, I don't care if you were saved 30 years ago or three days ago, your testimony can simply be, who are you? I'm the one that Jesus came toward. Like, like, 
Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't do it, man. Like, I really didn't do it. It wasn't me. I didn't deserve it. I actually deserve something far, far, far worse. And I'm just the one that Jesus came toward, bro. And because he came toward me, now I realize that my life can never be the same. I've received mercy, so I give it. And so I, I've, I've been freely forgiven, so now I freely forgive. Now I've been loved so extravagantly. I love extravagantly. And, and I'm just the one that Jesus came toward. That's all. That's it. That's who I am. And you might be asking, well, great, okay, I, want, I, I get it, I get it. And this is the last thing I say, I promise, the last verse. It says this. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, the question is answered here. And how do we do that? It's answered by Mary. Luke chapter 2, verse 19, so beautifully says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. But Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. How do you do it? How do you receive your miracle? You treasure Christ above all else. You ponder his goodness in your heart on a daily basis. You look at Jesus and keep looking at him. You think about Jesus and you keep thinking about him. You think about who I was and who he is and I see myself in light of you and I just have to worship and give him back his doxa. I say, I know I'm not adding to your glory. I'm just giving back what ultimately belongs to you and glory is now seen in me because of the mercy that I've received in Christ Jesus. And you know what, God? Out of that, I just treasure you. I forsake everything else and I see the treasure in the empty lot and in my joy, I sell all of my possessions and then I go and buy that treasure. The thing is, when you see Jesus truly for who he is, nothing else even compares. What do you do? You treasure him. You ponder in your heart. You realize I'm the one that Jesus came toward. And now in this season, Jesus, I refuse to make you an addition to my life. I choose to make you my life. Like Paul says, I am found in Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. I treasure you, Jesus. Heaven has a mission to glorify God. Jesus has a mission to seek and save the lost, to preach the gospel. We have a mission to let us go and see Christ. And I promise you, once you know you've been made worthy, you will walk worthy. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you so much. And Lord, we just want to take a moment to glorify you. Glorify you, Jesus, by treasuring you. Pondering in our hearts. There's some of us where when we leave this room, there might be some, 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 some anxiety waiting for you, some things to do, some, some, some projects to accomplish, some, some people to talk to. But in this moment, would you treasure Christ with me? Jesus, 
we're the ones you came toward. Undeserving. Unwilling. Sinful. Far off people. And we couldn't get to you. And you refused to send another prophet, another law, another work. But you chose to send yourself. And now everything that we are is encompassed in everything that you are. And so, Lord, we pour ourselves out for the glory of God. That Jesus, would you be treasured in this church as we make much of you in our lives? Would the world see the true doxa in the glory of God? God, above all else, would we refuse to make you an addition? And Lord, would we fully realize by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, That you, in you, is everything that we need. God, we are found in you. (laughs) Those who hold on to their lives will lose it. But those who lose their lives for my sake and for the gospels will truly find it. (laughs) God, let, let me lose my life for your sake and for the gospels. I love you, Jesus. I love you so much. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much.